There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Thank you, Anne, and welcome to It's All About Skills. This is a series of programs where we discuss the critical skills and their application in the real world. My name is Charlie Jett, and we're coming to you from our studio in beautiful downtown Chicago. I'm an internationally certified coach specializing in career management, skill development, and career crises. And consistent with that, we have a wonderful guest today, Mark Hirschberg. He's the author of The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Mark has spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups in Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped to start the Undergraduate Practice Opportunities Program, dubbed, dubbed the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. At MIT, he received dual degrees, a bachelor's in physics and a bachelor's in electrical engineering and computer science, and a master's in engineering in electrical engineering and computer science and focused on cryptography. At the Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a, a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many nonprofits, including Techie Youth and Plant a Million Corps. And as a side note, he was one of the top ranked ballroom dancers in the country and now lives in New York City, where he's known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party, as well as, get this, his diverse cufflink collection. So welcome, Mark, to It's All About Skills. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I love the fact that you are focused on careers. And with that focus, uh, what led you to that interest anyway? I don't think there was any one epiphany that led me there. But one thing I noticed was a lot of my volunteer work was based around helping people with their professional efficacy. It was helping to run an online community for software developers, where despite hundreds of thousands of people mostly asking technical questions, I was drawn to the job discussion section and helping folks. It was volunteer work like with Streetwise Partners, helping people who did not have the opportunity some of us did to really change their path in life. And that began with putting them on a job track that went from minimum wage with no benefits or opportunities to not necessarily more money, but suddenly more opportunities and potential. And I think what's always pained me is when I see people who have potential, but just can't optimize or make the most of it, and they struggle in their careers. So I think it's always been in me, and eventually it all came together and I became aware of my passion here. Oh, wow. Now you arrived at the conclusion that there are certain essential skills for success, skills that no one ever taught you. Tell us what those skills are and how did you uh, discover them anyway? So the skills I lay out in the book are 10 skills divided into three sections. 
the first section on careers, how to create and execute a career plan. Second chapter focuses on workplace skills and work optimization, managing your manager, fitting into corporate culture. Third section is on interviewing. And while there's a lot of material out there on how to interview as a candidate, most of us at some point in white collar jobs will have to interview other people be on the interviewer side, and yet we get no training. I've met so many executives who have had no training how to interview other people, but of course, hiring the right or wrong people makes a huge difference to our organizations. The second section is on leadership and management, and so I focus on the fundamentals of leadership, and then management look at both from the people side, how do you motivate and work with people, and then what are some processes, not Six Sigma or Agile, but what are the fundamentals that go into any type of process so we can create optimal processes for what we need. And then the last section, key interpersonal skills, communication, negotiation, networking, and ethics. Now, where these skills came from, some of them I discovered on my own as I was working on my own career path, but what helped to formalize them is that when I began thinking about the book, it came from research that we've gotten at MIT and similar research I've seen at many other universities from corporations who have said, sure, we want smart people who know accounting or marketing or programming, but here are the other skills that we want to hire for, not just right out of school, but in general, and we can't find these skills. So there's been consistent demand for these skills. This wasn't just what I came up with off the top of my head. This is what I see companies asking for. Perfect, perfect. Now you have degrees from MIT, dual degrees, and your interest in careers led you back to your alma mater there to create the Career Success Accelerator. Tell us about that and what it uh, has accomplished. So the first part of my career, in fact, I'd say half of my career is what you'd expect. I was a software developer early on. I've done startup companies, as you noted, big companies, small companies, and I really enjoy doing that. But as I alluded to in my earlier answer, I recognize that I was missing skills. I wanted to become a CTO, a chief technology officer. And to be the CTO, it didn't mean I had to be the best programmer. In fact, I'm a worse programmer today than when I was doing it 50 hours a week. <laughs> but there were other skills that were important for that role, leadership, communications, negotiation, having a strong network, and that was never taught to me. So I began to develop these skills in myself. And as I was growing, I realized these skills are not just for executives or not just for people at the top of the hierarchy. They benefit all of us. So I wanted to hire people with these skills, but found the same problem. No one else was taught this either in college. So I had to build, not buy, right? I couldn't find people with the skills. I had to train them up. I created my own training programs. When I was doing this 20 some years ago, the World Wide Web wasn't as developed. We didn't have as many resources. We didn't have great podcasts like this one. So I had to do it myself. And around the same time, MIT started to get that feedback I mentioned saying, these are the skills that are missing. So MIT wanted to put together a program on it. And when I heard about this, I reached out and said, you know, I've been working on this, happy to chat with you about what I've been doing. They said, yes, please come help us design this class. And I said, you know what? We have wonderful professors but we really also want to get practitioners. People understand how this is in the field. Would you like to come help teach? And I've been lucky enough that for the past 20 years, myself and other people like me have been involved in helping to teach those students at MIT. 
Wow. You know, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. It sounds like MIT is on the forefront of, of this sort of thing. It also sounds like these uh, skills are rather hard to teach. Uh, tell us, you know, how these skills are being taught, if you know or if we're aware, aware of this, in our K through 12 schools and other colleges. Unfortunately, it's few and far between. I don't see a lot of this in K through 12 schools. Typically, they might have a career day where someone's parent comes in and says, you know, I'm a doctor, this is what I do. I know some universities are starting to do small programs. So University of Michigan, where I recently gave a lecture, they have a program required for all their engineering students. And it just covers a number of basically adulting topics. Now we talked about careers and some of the other skills I do in the book. They also have people come in to talk about financial planning and just other lifestyle skills because people aren't getting it. Now, the reason this isn't taught is historical. K through 12, which goes back, or the US education system there goes back about 150 years. And really it was designed to help people function in the workforce, but a very different type of workforce. People originally were on the farm and you learned everything you needed to know from your father, who was the farmer and you picked up or from your mom who would teach you how to sew dresses and cook dinner. That's you know, very stereotypes, uh, very stereotypical back then. Now, when people started to leave the farm and go into the workforce, they needed to know how to read and write and do basic math and work in factories. So that's why the K through 12 system began to teach these basic skills to work in an industrial society. And if you think about the offices, even mid-century, your job was to sit in your little desk and have your manager tell you what to do. Figure out how to consolidate all these invoices, determine you know, what the next marketing campaign should say. And then you do your job and say, here you go, sir, what next? You didn't have that higher order thinking. You were given very basic tasks. So we didn't have to teach folks those skills. Now that's changed in the modern world as we got rid of all that mill management in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and we came to these more complex teams. Now, as for college, the college system goes back almost 900 years, but college is really around particular disciplines. And if you think about a college degree, if you go and study marketing, so what happens is a bunch of marketing experts, we call them professors, so they have PhDs in marketing, they got together and said, well, if you want to get a marketing degree, we have determined here are the classes you need to take. Here are the core classes. Here are some optional senior level classes. If you take enough of these, what happens? We designate you as having a certain level of knowledge shown by a bachelor's degree in marketing. And of course, the university throws in a few other general requirements, but that's it. They're not saying you're a great marketer. They're not saying you're a good employee. All the degree says is you have achieved a certain level of knowledge in this particular discipline. And that is a necessary but not sufficient condition to be a good worker and to have a, a successful career in the 21st century. Wow, there, uh, it sounds like there's quite a challenge to, uh, to starting to teach these skills at not only the co other college levels, but uh, high school. So, Let's create a hypothetical situation. Suppose uh, you've just been appointed and confirmed as the US Secretary of Education. You have the challenge of creating programs to teach these skills in, let's, let's focus on K through 12 schools around the nation. What are some of the things you'd propose? 
Okay, that is a big, hairy, complex question. <laughs> I would begin by considering the Coleman Report. Now, for those not familiar, the Coleman Report was the biggest study of the US educational system back in the 1960s. And the primary conclusion was that schools themselves had very little influence on the outcomes of the students. Weak correlation. What was more important was the communities in which these students grew up. Now, in that particular study, this was used, think 1960s, back when you had different school districts, you had segregation, and we saw there were different funding levels. Fast forward to today, we still have lots of different funding levels, but it's not just funding in terms of what the school resources has, that funding is a proxy to the community. And we know there are communities where you have single parent homes, or rather one parent working and one parent at home, and you can have an environment where the parent is there helping them with their homework, saying, what's going on with your friends? You're staying out late. I don't like that, you know, come home early. And then you have environments where you might have a single working parent or two working parents who don't pay as much attention to their children or environments in which the children don't grow up seeing some of these skills that we want. So for anything we're gonna teach in education that applies to these skills too, I really think we have to look at holistically and not just about the school, but about the entire community. Now, unfortunately, uh, the Secretary of Education has limited scope outside of the schools. Um, so that's, that's one challenge, but let's focus on what we can do in the schools. The second problem is I think we have let our standards slide too much. We have too many 12th graders who read at an eighth grade level or who do math at a seventh grade level. And this is something we have to address. We cannot just let them graduate and get into society when they have not passed to the standards we have set. So I would do something probably very controversial. We haven't even gotten to the skills yet, but I do something very controversial, which is hold people to the standards if that means more schooling, then that's what we do. And I think it's not so much more schooling, but it goes back to this community and how we create the environments in which they learn these skills. Now for the skills that we're talking about, I do think some of these need to be taught. We might not get as deep into leadership and certainly we're not gonna talk as much about creating a career plan to a 10th grader, but we want to talk about how to think about options, not just do you want to be a doctor, yes or no? Do you want to be an accountant, yes or no? We want to focus on things like communication, on networking, because that's really about relationships, mm -hmm. even learning to negotiate, because it's not just about negotiating salaries, it's about conflict resolution, which is a really important fundamental skill. So we want to start to bring these in and importantly, help students understand these are all learnable skills. Unfortunately, too many students think, oh yeah, that kid or class president, she's a natural leader. She's great, I'm not, it's just not me. But you can learn to be a leader. You can learn to be a better communicator or negotiator. All of these are learnable and that's a clear message we have to get to them. And I'd also throw in a few other things, not in my book, financial literacy is very important. I will include some of the skills that you bring up in your skill set. I'd even include how to think about personal relationships. I see too many people not understanding how to create effective personal relationships and failures in friendship, failures in marriages, because we're not teaching them the skills by which to create successful ones. Mm -hmm. It sounds like 
it sounds like some of these skills that you're referring to also uh, are taught in the K through 12 uh, area in, in, in areas that aren't necessarily part of the core curriculum. They might be extracurricular activities, things like the performing arts and sports and things like that. They do pick up some of those, but I think they need to be more formal or the connections need to be made. Now we know, for example, sports often teaches leadership, but they don't formally teach it. They don't say, and by the way, do you see how what you've done here, how you're leading the team and how you can connect this to leadership in other areas? And so I think we're missing an opportunity to really ground these skills that they're exposed to and get into them in a way they can identify and reuse. And then of course, they might not do sports or music or some of these other activities and miss out altogether. So I think we have to be more intentional with how we're doing these. Yeah, in one way, one, one program or some of the programs that have been taught or tried in the past, to my knowledge, are programs that focus on work-based learning, on uh, giving students an opportunity to work in a real world situation. Uh, not just vocational education, but a real world situation so they can pick up some of these things. What have you seen in, uh, in, in that area? Unfortunately, I don't think those programs have worked especially well. Part of it, the level that the students can engage with is usually pretty basic, particularly at the high school level. So they're not really getting the deep exposure and they really need coaching to understand what they mm -hmm. are seeing. Because students at that age have this expectation of you go to your job and there's a certain type of work. If you're an accountant, you're adding up numbers, programmers write things, surgeons cut things out of your body. We understand that aspect. We have not been exposed to the aspect of corporate politics or how to deal with conflict at work. And so even if the student might happen to come across that in a meeting, it's probably going to go right over his or her head because they don't even have the context to identify what is happening. So when we do these programs, we need to do so by supplementing it with the context in which they can begin to understand and internalize what they're seeing. The program I teach at MIT, we do have them do a summer internship. It is a very high touch program. We actually have them write essays about some of what they're experiencing and we look at it and say, okay, right. She understands what she's seeing there and how she's linking the skills. This guy over here, I think he, he missed the point. Let's jump on the phone with him, talk to him about what's happening and how he can apply what we've taught to what he's experiencing. So I think we need to take that next step. Yep. And uh, so on a lot of these programs that teach the kind of skills that you're talking about, um, it's hard to assess those skills. I mean, assessments in schools these days are more like standardized tests. And it doesn't seem to me that, uh, and I'd, rather, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, that you can assess a student's competency in some of those skills through a standardized test. Unfortunately, I don't think it's so easy. And it has to do with what these skills are. Let's think about how they're best taught, and then we'll think about how to evaluate them. Now, traditionally, the way we teach in K through 12, as well as college, is some expert stands in front of the room and says, here is knowledge. Here are the important dates in history, and here's why this country attacked that one. In math, here's a formula. Here are examples how to apply it. And as a student, you just memorize. And then on the test, you regurgitate. 
And that's it, simple memorization. When it comes to these skills, leadership, there is no formula for leadership. When it comes to communication, there's no do these three things and poof, you're now magically communicating better. These are complex, subtle types of skills that are multifaceted. The way we teach them at MIT and the way top business schools teach these is through a peer learning method. And yes, you have a professor who guides the discussion or puts in some, some thoughts and ideas, but why this peer learning is important is because as we're discussing a communication issue, and we talk about this circumstance, maybe one I experienced or maybe in a case study or something we all read about, as we discuss it, I might say, well, you know, here's how I would approach it. And then you'd say, okay, well, that's interesting, Mark, but I would approach it differently. Oh, that's interesting. We're gonna hear six other ways to approach it. And so I can learn from how you approach it. I might say, wow, Charles, that's a really good insight. I'm gonna include some of that. Or I might say, you know what? I'm, that's not for me, you have a different style, but I'm at least aware of a different approach. And when I engage with coworkers in the future and they use your approach, instead of saying, oh, this person's a fool, he doesn't know how to communicate, go, oh, okay, right, he's doing what, how Charles does it, I get it, I understand. So you really wanna get this multifaceted approach that comes from these peer discussions. Okay, how does this go to assessments? When we're assessing your math understanding, we say, how many of these formulas can you apply? Can you figure out the area of the triangle? History, do you know what year this took place in or why this country was angry at another country? English, we're looking at your grammar. English is probably the closest to it. Uh, I remember growing up, we had to do essays and we had the five paragraph essay, very structured. It was first paragraph, you create your thesis statement, three supporting points and then concluding summary. And yes, you had grammar, very strict rules and grammar and spelling, and you had a very clear format. That's different than if they said, write some type of fiction and we're going to evaluate the level of creativity in your stories. We don't know how to do that. Not easily, not at a large scale. So when it comes to leadership, communications, all these other skills, networking, it's more of that kind of fiction writing and that's this open-ended, there's more than one way to do it. There's not one format or structure or a few rules that you either get or don't. I think that's so much harder to evaluate. I, some of these, you might be able to, a career plan, we can look at how concrete your plan is. Negotiations actually can be done reasonably objectively. The way they teach this in business schools is you actually put people into a negotiation and you objectively measure their outcomes, how well they did in this scenario compared to others. So a few of these can, but most of these skills I think are going to be very subtle and hard to measure without really having multiple people watching, looking, and engaging per student. That's just not cost-effective. Well, it is a challenge. And it sounds like uh, what you're saying too is that assessment of these uh, students in, in terms of these skills has to be based on some sort of uh, performance or uh, you know, it actually rate some sort of performance against some sort of rubric. And what that rubric is, I have no clue. <laughs> If you look at, for example, in sports, there's the combine. Now, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote about the combine and what he said was actually the combine, how you did in the combine, this is an activity where they do some weightlifting, some running, some jumping, certain just kind of small physical activities as a metric for how well you might perform on the field. He said, there's actually not necessarily great correlation because sure, if you're a basketball player, how high you can jump 
okay, that there's probably something there. It's got to be weakly correlated. But then there's court sense. Then there's how you do as a teammate and work with others. And we can't even begin to measure that. And that's why you have other teams, coaching teams that kind of look and say, how can we put this all together to figure out who might be a good player for this particular team in this situation? And so it's much more subtle and complex. Uh, that's, it sounds like it. And it's quite a challenge. Now, prior to this, we discussed, uh, and one of the things that attracted me, me to uh, what you're doing is the similarity between the eight critical skills that, that I present and the skills that you present. It seems like, in a sense, uh, we're talking about the same thing, just in different words. What, what is your, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think a lot of these overlap. Uh, some are things that there were a whole bunch of other skills that I just said, you know what, I, I think we're going to limit it to 10. Yeah. Uh, and, and the 10 that I'm seeing most from the corporations, which is not to say others aren't in there. So when you discuss communication, obviously, I, I talk about as one that underpins everything. When we look at interpersonal, how we relate to other people. Again, a lot of the skills I have come to that. Production and time management, that goes into management. Continued education, that's one I didn't address. But in fact, that is really an important piece that I probably should have said something about that. And if I do another book, that will probably be in there. Uh, my friend Ruth Gautian, she has an upcoming book in uh, 2022. And she has interviewed world-class people in all fields, from Nobel laureates to Olympic gold medalists to astronauts to CEOs, all these great people. And one of the attributes she found across all of them is continuing education. It might not be formal education. Many of them have a PhD. This is as far as they're going in formal education, but they say that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep learning. And so that's absolutely an important skill. And so, yeah, I think we can look at this in all different ways and it's just how you break it down. But uh, I think there's general agreement, no matter what models we use on what some of these skills are. Yeah, we're talking about the same things. And you, you took the time based on your experience and your study and with this sort of thing to write a book called The Career Toolkit. Uh, tell us about why you wrote this book, who's the primary audience, um, who should buy it, and what you want it to do. The book is partially based on this class I've been teaching for 20 years at MIT. And in fact, I'll give the origin of the book. For years, I've said, okay, this class is great we need to put this content online. MIT pioneered online learning. Uh, we created what turned into EDX, where we took our classes, said we're going to give it away for free. And I want to do it with this content. I also wanted our students, because it's very experiential learning, to just have some notes, have something they could take away with them. But for various reasons, the program, we were so busy with other things, we didn't do any of that. I said, all right, well, I'm going to just put down some notes here for the students. And really, that's what I thought I was doing, creating about 20 pages of notes. Well, 20 pages became 40, became 80, became 150. So, you know what? I think this is a book. This is a set of notes. This is a book. Now, as I then started to think about, okay, well, if this is going to be a book, what goes in, what comes out, how to structure it, why this book, when we know there's lots of books on leadership or other things. And so really, this book it is for everyone. There is no one age. Now, it tends to resonate a little more with folks 20s, 30s, into their 40s, mostly because folks in their 50s and 60s, 
either said, I care about this and probably already invested in some of this, or they didn't care. And so they're not going to buy my book or, or any other. But really, it, it's for, I, I do have people in their 50s and 60s who have read it and said, this is a great insight. I never thought of this. So really, anyone who wants to learn these skills, you can read the book. Now, we know there's plenty of other books on leadership, on negotiations, on communication, whole books on it. So why this book? What's different? Within each chapter, uh, there's two key things. First, it is a mentality. It is a shift in how you think and approach. I'll give an example of that in the moment. And then second, I read all these books and think, this 200-page book, this could have been 30 pages, and then you have 170 pages of examples. I just needed the 30. So I really boil it down to here are the concrete steps and action items you can take to begin your journey. I did not write the last word on these, but it's going to get you that mental shift and help you get on your path. And most importantly, these skills all support each other. Good leaders know how to negotiate. Good negotiators know how to communicate. Now, I said there is a mental shift in each one of these chapters. So let me give an example of what that is. Let's take networking. Most people, they think, okay, networking, right? This is, I need a job. So I'm going to go out. Oh, look, here's an event. And in 30 minutes, I'm going to meet 10 people, have 10 new business cards. And hopefully one of them can get me a job. Yeah. And this is how people think. Saying someone you just met who gave you their card or someone you just added on LinkedIn is now in your network. That's like saying someone who you swipe right on Tinder is now your significant other, right? It's laughable to think, oh, look, click, boom, I have a new relationship. Now we know with Tinder, if you swipe right on the dating app, what happens? You say, okay, well, now we're gonna go on dates and build up that relationship and see if we like each other. Same thing happens in our relationships for networking. Okay, great, we met once, but now are you someone where I can, for Tinder, would I propose marriage? For someone I just met professionally, would I say, hey, listen, I need to do a joint partnership. Can you just sign this deal? Or can I borrow $10,000? Or can you introduce me to your CEO because I want a picture, right? You can't do the big ask until we build the relationship. So the mental shift, when we think about networking, it is about relationship building. And even introverts who say, I can't go in a room and meet 10 people. I don't want to do that. But you can meet people one at a time. And when you think about once I meet someone, I build that relationship. I focus on this one person, not collecting lots of cards. You change how you approach networking. You change it from, I need a job. I'm going to meet random people and take the shotgun approach to, I'm going to foster relationships. And down the road, that will pay off. Because when I need a job, it's going to come from someone I met five years ago and have kept in touch with. And so each chapter has that type of mental shift and then the items to execute on this new way of thinking about it. And it's, uh, it it's kind of aims toward uh, helping a person develop a career plan of sorts. So tell me, what uh, what is a career plan and why do people need one? So many people say, ah, you know, you can't really plan your career or I'm just worried about my next job. So let's think about this in a different context. If you ever do a project at work, something more than a few weeks, so if you're doing a multi-month project, a year-long project, what do you do? You come up with a plan. You have a timeline, you have a budget, a project plan, here are the steps and milestones. 
And of course, it's never going to work out that way, right? No project we have ever created, no plan has ever exactly worked out. But by having that plan, we can recognize, are we off plan? Are we behind schedule? You know what? We are changing the outcome, right? We've seen CEOs say, stop the presses. We've got to adjust what we're doing, go in a different direction. So when that happens, we go, okay, well, we're going to readjust the plan and now go in a new direction. But all of this implies having a plan. If we didn't, or imagine saying to your boss, okay, uh, yeah, we have to do this in two years. So I'm going to go back to my cubicle and I'll see you in two years. Let's hope we make it. Right? Your boss would never accept that. But you're doing that when you say to yourself, well, I've got this 30, 40 year career. Eh, let's just see where we wind up. Right? What you want to do is create a plan that begins by thinking about where you want to be. So I have a whole bunch of questions to help you start to answer where you might want to be. For some people, it's a very clear job title. For others, it's, well, I have a sense of where I might want to go. And that's okay. You don't have to know exactly. But then you want to backtrack, right? Just think about if you are driving across country. Okay, I want to wind up in San Francisco. So I know I don't go through Alaska, right? Maybe I go through Alabama. I'm in New York. I, if I go to Alabama, that's because it's a detour, though maybe along the way, there's something interesting to see in Alabama. More likely, I'm going to try going through Ohio and Iowa. And so I'm going to have my plan. But of course, what happens? The plan doesn't work out exactly. So we have to make course corrections. We have to make changes. I might decide, you know, instead of San Francisco, I decide I want to go to LA instead. So along the way, I just redirect the route. So you want to create the plan by saying, where am I trying to go? and then backtracking and the stuff that's going to happen in the near future, the next one to three years, okay, concretely, I need to develop these skills, this knowledge. How am I going to do them? Am I taking a class, reading a book? There's other stuff I need to do five to 10 years out. Okay, it's on my list, but I don't have to worry about that now. Just like, okay, if I'm driving through Ohio, what highway do I need to be on? I know later I'm going to drive through Nevada. I'm not worried right now about which route I'm taking through Nevada. I'll figure that out as I get closer to Nevada. So you want to start with that goal, backtrack out and be very specific in the near term and just have more of a longer term plan. It's a little fuzzier and that will get readjusted as you go. Wow. And it, you know, one of the things that seems fundamental to what you, what you're talking about is if you have these essential skills that you're talking about, these things are portable. They go wherever you are. And today's career world is not like it used to be. You have to have portable skills. You have to be able to adapt to the curbs in the road, pick different cities to go through and, and like your, your description. And you have to be able to continuously learn to adapt to the changes in technology and that sort of thing. You, you cover it, so you, you cover it. You never know when something's going to come along. For example, off the top of my head, I'm going to say global pandemic that ruins certain industries, right? And what happens if you've been working in travel, for example, it's been a really rough year for you. There weren't, it's not that your company went out of business and then he just went somewhere else. All the companies were in trouble. You might have had to pivot to a different industry, but these skills are fundamental. As you point out, you can take them from one to another. Here's the other thing about these skills. I'm going to give an example using negotiations. So imagine you're 25 years old and you have a job offer for $60,000, but you read up on negotiation. You learn a little bit about how to be a negotiator, not a world-class negotiator. You're not solving the Middle East crisis. You're just 
little little knowledge of it. So you go and negotiate that job offer and you go from 60,000 to 61,000. That's it, very tiny uplift. So now, okay, you get 61,000. If you do nothing else in your career, if you sit in that job for the next 40 years, you got $1,000 more for 40 years. One tiny five-minute negotiation just got you $40,000 in lifetime earning. Now, of course, you're not going to be in this job for 40 years. You're going to have other jobs. You're going to have promotions. You're going to negotiate bigger raises. So in fact, if you learn to negotiate, this skill is going to help you get not just $1,000 more, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars more throughout your lifetime. Again, not being the best negotiator in the world, just getting a little bit better. And of course, we're just talking salary. In fact, when you learn to negotiate, it's going to help you conflict resolution with your coworkers. It's going to help you create better solutions. And now I pick negotiation because it's easy to see, okay, 60 to 61,000, you can do the math, 40 years, I got the numbers. It's not immediately obvious, but it is true that this applies to all these other skills. If you get slightly better at communicating, if you get slightly better at leading, no one's going to say, here's $1,000 more, but they are going to say, you are a good communicator. We want you to join this project. You are a good leader. You're the one we want to have lead this team. So as you develop these skills, it's not about being the best. It is about getting incrementally better. These will deliver tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars in value to you throughout your career. So these skills are portable. These skills are also cumulative throughout your career and worth investing in. It sounds too like uh, what I like about, about your book and what you've described is that you, you, you teach the blocking and tackling of career and you basically the kinds of things you need to be good at. You can't anticipate what's going to happen and that sort of thing. So you, you don't have a career plan that to tell somebody to build a career plan that's very linear. You've got to be you've got to be ready for the twists and turns in the road and choose a different destination from time to time because the world changes so fast. Absolutely. I open the chapter with a quote from my friend, Professor Jason Rosenhaus. Jason and I used to teach chess together, and that probably helped influence my thinking. When you play chess, you think about, okay, I have to eventually capture my opponent's king. Early on, I might not have a concrete plan, but I'm, I'm kind of moving towards this direction. But of course, I only control half of it. I can control my movements. I can't control how my opponent moves. And so I have to adjust along the way. And what Jason used to say is always have a plan. Even a bad plan is better than no plan at all. So start with your bad plan. And then as you go, keep improving it. And you can keep improving it if you've got those fundamental skills that you talk about that you can take with you from place to place. So uh, assume you have sort of a, a plan. You said to put together something. And then uh, what about revisions? Talk about that again a little bit more, Langan. How often should you re revisit that? It's important to remember that your career plan is not set in stone. So you want to regularly check back in. Now, I recommend at least once a year. And certainly if you're doing an annual review at your company or maybe a semi-annual review, that's a great time to check back in on your plan. Say, how am I doing? Because remember at these reviews, it's not just your company saying, here's what we think of you. Now go work for another year. 
it's a chance for you to say, okay, great. And you're telling me you want me to improve in these areas. Well, here are some other areas I also want to improve in. Some of them will hopefully overlap, but others you could say to your boss, you know, I decided this year I have to get better at public speaking. Can we find opportunities for me to do more public speaking, even if just internal in the company? And can I get your support and feedback and help in developing this skill? So you want to do it at least once a year, but there's other times to think about whenever you have a job opportunity, how do you decide if that job is right? So I'll give an example from my own. In fact, this is what first got me started on. I was working at a startup company and the founders basically had a falling out. So the company split in two. My boss who was leaving said, Mark, it's been great working with you, starting a new company, please come with me. And the guys who were staying said, Mark, we've loved having you here. I know this guy's leaving and taking folks. We'd love for you to stay. Okay, well, how do I figure out which one of those is right? And in fact, I wound up going with a third choice, but to figure it out, I had to say, what do I want? It's not just money, it's other things, right? It's challenge, it's growth, it's the environment I'm working in. Now that I have this metric, now I can look at each job and say, which job best serves that goal. So anytime you have a job opportunity, whether it's a new job or whether it's a new project within the company, ask yourself, how will this take you towards your goal versus what you're doing currently versus other opportunities? And if you're not sure, then you say, maybe I should revise my plan and think about, is this still what I want to be doing and where I want to go? Okay, now that I've updated it, now let's use that metric to evaluate the options. Wow. Well, hey, Mark, we've covered a lot here today, but I'll, yeah, I'll tell you one thing that, really, that I really, really like. You don't have a simple solution for a complex problem. You have built fundamentals that people can focus on and learn and take with them and be adaptable to a more complicated world. And um, I think, uh, you know, I'd like to have gone out and bought uh, the career toolkit uh, when I was back in college. But unfortunately, you weren't around that time. But now if somebody wants to buy it or once somebody wants to get in touch with you, uh, how do they get in touch with you anyway? You can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, and there you can learn more about the book as well as where to buy it, usual places, Amazon, local bookstores, there are electronic copies as well. There's also a free app that you can download from the website. It's available for Android and iPhone, and links from the website will take you to those stores. There's also a resources page where I list other great books, as well as tools to help you develop this in yourself and across your organization, learn this with other people. This is all free and it's available at thecareertoolkitbook.com. Thecareertoolkitbook.com. I've been there and it's worthwhile visiting and I will encourage all of our listeners uh, to do, as, do so as well. Well, Mark, I wanna thank you so much for your generosity for spending your time with us today. Uh, you're certainly getting the message out uh, about the importance of these uh, essential skills and I wish you all the best for your continued efforts and for what I can do to help you uh, please uh, please count on that and as for our listeners um, I thank you for joining Mark and me today and we'll be back generally on a weekly basis to present more perspectives on the critical skills in it's all about skills 
Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com. We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.